Hey guys, quick commercial here. Thanksgiving is this week, which means Christmas is right around the corner. And we all know Christmas is going to look a little different this year for most of us. It is. And so we wanted to offer you guys a tool to help us all breathe and soak in some truth this Christmas. Renee and I have written what we're calling the 12 Days of Restoration devotional for this season. For 12 days leading up to Christmas, we will dive into the Word together and work through topics we've discussed on this podcast so far in 2020. Yes, we'll work through fear, ideas of creation, justice, hope, and a lot more. Um, the downloadable devotional will be available on our website, twomamasandamustardseed.com next Monday, which is otherwise known as Cyber Monday. Um, producing a podcast is costly as most good things are. And so we are charging a small fee for this. Your purchase will go toward production costs in 2021. This will help cover some of our out-of-pocket costs. We have some awesome content coming your way in the new year and your financial support will help us bring that to you. Sure. So we're so thankful for your support our first season of two mamas and a mustard seed and we would love 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 for you guys to join us uh in the 12 days of restoration uh, by getting your copy starting november 30th so welcome back to two mamas and a mustard seed we are so glad you are here for our thanksgiving episode we're calling it family ties and today we have uh, a couple of very special guests with us. Renee, would you like to introduce them? Oh, that sure. I guess so. That's, <laughs> yeah. Our our husbands are here. Oh, hello. Sweet. <laughs> we're, fi- we're finally bringing the the guys onto the show. Yeah. Yes, uh, we didn't even have to to drag them. Well, maybe, um, <laughs> but they were excited. <laughs> They were excited to do it. So Renee's husband's name is Andy, and uh, I have my husband Lance here with me. So guys, welcome to the show. Renee and I are excited that the four of us finally get to sit down together and that we're doing it in a COVID-friendly way. We are doing it via Zoom. That's right. This, uh, this COVID business is getting crazy again. I guess we're, we're living in a red county, so we're all going to stay safe. Follow guidelines as hard as we can. Anyway, here we are. Yep. So if we have any audio problems again, if my dog starts barking or my teenager starts barking, y'all forgive us. We're yes. super professional today. Anyway, thanks, Andy and Lance, for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. So we thought we'd do something fun to start off. We're going to give you guys both about three or four minutes to share with our listeners how you met your wives. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And we're sticklers. We're sticklers on time management. So we'll give you a great big buzzing sound or a big X with our arms. Um, Renee, Renee's more of a stickler than I am. She's an Enneagram 8. So that's right. right there. You'll be in the doghouse, Andy, if yeah. you go over three or four minutes. Although I'm probably even more so. That German in me just comes out and you got to be on time. If you're not five minutes early, you're late. You All that Lombardi time. That's right. That's right. <laughs> So there's, there's our warning. So with that said, we're going to start with Lance. Lance, give us the, I don't even know the story about you and Kisa. How did you all meet? You really don't know the story? Come on. I don't. Okay. All right. Yeah. Here we go. So in, uh, so in 2003, I was living in Tampa, Florida, and I had an advancement opportunity with the company that I was working with at the time, which was Humana, taking me to Kansas City. 
didn't know anybody in Kansas City, thought it was, you know, the land of Dorothy and Toto and got to KC and I kind of appreciated the solitude for a little while. It was a chance to focus on work, kind of reflect a little bit, have some of that alone time. But about two, three months into that, uh, started getting a little lonely. <laughs> so was looking for some things to do, got online and uh, found the salsa class. Yeah, salsa dance class down the street. Oh, that's right. Uh, at a uh, location uh, close to where I was living at the time. And I thought, you know, I'd done some of that in Tampa, so let me, let me go get social there. So I'll get to the class, and typically in these social. environments, yeah, whether it's ballroom or <laughs> Latin dancing, you're laughing already. Uh, I like the, it. The girls outnumber the guys. So typically what happens is the guys stay stationary, girls rotate through, and it's a chance for you to learn how to dance with different people, different styles, and kind of learn how to lead them through the moves. So here comes Kisa. She rotates over to me, and uh, I'm smiling because I'm just trying to be pleasant and inviting, and first thing she says is, nice teeth. (laughs) She says that I was smiling larger than life, according to her. vantage point um, and so so we we start to go through this basic step and this step is super basic and it feels like it's taken forever it's getting a little monotonous so I decide well I'm gonna add a little underarm turn <laughs> so as soon as I do that Kisa just erupts oh you're a pro you just think you're a pro huh <laughs> and I was so sincere and just trying to break up the monotony but you know Kisa gets me again uh uh, and so, anyway, that was our, our first little interaction, and it was a beginner's class, and of course, I continue to come back, and I always uh, make light of the fact that, you know, look, Kisa's keeps coming back to this uh, beginner's dance class with all this <laughs> accomplished dance experience that she had had with ballet and modern and everything, going to a performing arts school, but she keeps coming back to this beginner's class. I don't know why, but anyway. <laughs> uh, we... Uh, we're, we're seeing each other in, in, at these classes and, and I catch her after class and, and again, super sincere, but I can see how this would come across. I said, hey, I don't want to pay $60 for private lessons. What if we got together and practiced? <laughs> <laughs> so, so Kisa says right away, she says, why don't we just be friends first? What church do you belong to? Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> And of course, I didn't belong to any church at that time, but uh, uh, she, she follows that up with, hey, we, we get together on Friday nights at this uh, establishment for social dance and you should, you should attend. And I thought she was just kind of blowing me off, but then she reiterated it and says, yeah, you should come out. So I went out there uh, that Friday night and it was a chance for us to get together again in a different setting and, and talk a little bit. It, it all kind of blossomed from there. Now there's one part that I left out and I'm going to let Kisa tell it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Cause this is the phrase that pays. This is kind of what, you know, kind of got me really interested. So, uh, so we're walking out of class and, and let me tell you, I was coming back to the beginner class because I just joined the performance team and, you know, I still had some of the basics to learn, you know, I, some of the basics. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, we're leaving class one day and, it's raining outside, like it's pouring cats and dogs, you know, I'm getting my bag together, getting my shoes and stuff, my umbrella and, and Lance says, so, uh, Hey, where's your, where's your car? And so I point to my car outside the door. I'm like, it's right there. And he says, well, you better hurry up and get to your car. Cause brown sugar melts in the rain. 
Oh, oh. <laughs> he didn't say that, but then he talks, and then he he turns around and walks out the door. So I'm like standing there, like, who is this guy? Like, for real? Are you for real? So, anyway, that's what got me in awesome. truth, and I was like, okay. Uh, <laughs> he had you there. He had me there. He had me had at home. Had, had you at brown sugar. <laughs> Ready to go, Lance. Nice, nice line. <laughs> That's awesome. So how long did you guys date for before y'all got married? Not long. A year and a half. Um, and, you know, if we want to get a little deep, um, I was so naive. I, I uh, At some point I told Kisa, hey, why don't you move in with me? And she says, I'm not moving in with anybody till I'm married. And yeah. I said, well, we're going to go ahead and get married then. And so on my birthday in 06, in March, we went down to the courthouse and got married. Keith's brother was witness, and the Maya and Milton got uh, some little um, gifts to kind of uh, commemorate uh, the, uh, the event. And um, we were married. And then on 7707, we did an official um, uh, ceremony and reception, and that was a blast. But uh, so we were, we got married twice, uh, <laughs> once in 06 and once in 07. Yeah. Awesome. So ladies, y'all know my favorite part of that story, right? I mean, brown sugar. Yeah, he had me right there. Hers is boring. Yeah, tell her, tell her boring story. Well, um, I had graduated and spent some time in New York and then uh, upstate New York. So when I talk about New York, it's upstate New York, like the mountains. Basically through that summer after I'd graduated, had interviewed for uh, a job down here in Louisville. And um, at that time it was Louisville. And um, you didn't know. I didn't know. I was quickly educated. And... um, and then uh, I guess that was the summer of 2006, right? Yes. I don't know. 2006. And then um, kind of like you, Lance, just um, get my feet in a new city and knew nothing about Louisville, honestly. And this is the honest truth because I'm such a Badger fan and a Big Ten fan that I didn't even know Louisville. I knew they had a basketball team. I didn't even know they had a football program, to be honest with you. So uh, – <laughs> Um, was also educated on that. And, and same with the UK. So I didn't know football existed in the state of Kentucky um, at that time. And But I'm down here and uh, severely missing snow and, you know, hockey. And about a year, half a year into it, I was like, man, I got to look for a church and went to Southeast and uh, about another six months. I'm very slow. I was like, ah, I better start volunteering and starting actually meeting people here. And so, <laughs> wow, probably a year, year and a half of living down here. And uh, so um, I would say Renee and I met in fifth grade. Um, and so um, I hate it when he says that. <laughs> she hates it. <laughs> it wasn't but, even uh, fifth, it was sixth grade. Sixth grade. Sorry. Sixth grade. sixth grade. We always meet in sixth grade. So we did not. We did not. She's from total different part of Ohio. What he doesn't like to say that I'm from Ohio because uh, it's not nothing I'm an Ohio State, State fan. It's, that's why. And so growing up, I always <laughs> said I would never marry an Ohio State fan. Well, God always has a sense of humor. So um, 
here we are. Here we are. But uh, no, we met in sixth grade at, and we both volunteered with our sixth grade middle school groups. And I was in with the sixth grade boys and, and mine and Renee was kind of in her sixth grade girls. And so we, we uh, met there and I don't know, it's probably what, six months that we just kind of hung out with a group of friends mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah. doing the activities and Tuesday nights and getting together at, at the you know, the middle school, what was that called? A yak or something? Yeah. The youth center at the time. Oh, so you guys were volunteering. In the we were volunteering. In oh, you didn't meet so I said we. <laughs> he never makes it clear when he That's the pun. That's, but yeah. that's part of the pun. <laughs> Everybody's right. like, what is he talking about? Yeah. <laughs> we were volunteering with the middle school youth group. We were. So we were the, <laughs> the leaders of co-opposite yeah. genders there. And so, um, that's how we met. That's how we met. And then um, it was probably six months or so after that, we, I had, uh, I asked her out. and You texted me. I texted her out. He texted me. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and then we, uh, we went to the Speed Art Museum and what was supposed to be a two hour date. Andy always confuses people with our story. I was 26 and Andy was 25 when we met just to clear it up. Now that our listeners know a little bit more about us, um, we wanted to ask a few questions. And so, of course, our podcast shares um, the views of us as mothers to Black children. So this week we wanted to share um, a different point of view uh, from you fathers. So seeing as we are part of racially blended families, We wanted to know if your parents, both of your parents, were very intentional about teaching you to embrace diversity growing up, or was it something you kind of developed through your own life experiences? Uh, Well, you know, I don't remember any deep conversations about race. Um, I do believe in retrospect now, looking back, that my parents really, they lived out um, a lot of values that, you know, my sister and I have got my sister, she's a year younger, kind of grew to appreciate and, and adopt. Um, I do remember my dad saying a couple of things when he would uh, kind of express a point of view and he would always either preface it or end it with, and I don't care if you're black, white, or green. And he really lived that out. My dad was a giver of his time and his money. And when I look at the people that he gave his time and money to, uh, you could not distinguish um, between any type of person that he was willing to help uh, and you know, that speaks volumes to me as to just how, uh, how he viewed, you know, um, any kind of person out there, uh, whether it's race or socioeconomic class or, or what have you. My mom was always a gracious host. Uh, man, she took such exceptional care of my sister and I, we had people over all the time and we brought a lot of people that didn't look like us to the house. And, uh, I never remember my mom, uh, um, differentiating her style or she was the same person, uh, regardless of who was in our home, the way she took care of us and picked up after us and created uh, activities for us and fed us. Um, you know, we were, um, you know, the, the environment uh, was always the same, regardless of who was visiting. And then uh, my dad was heavily involved in coaching and um, most of the teams that he coached throughout the years um, were uh, predominantly African-American kids, um, youth, middle, and and high school teams 
And of course, by the age of 10, I was a part of many of those teams where I was, you know, one of just a handful of white kids on the team. Uh, and then in schools that I attended, I'd say from middle school through high school, uh, the schools were, I would say, 50-50 white to other ethnicities. And so I think, you know, just observing my parents um, and, and then being in those environments myself, you mentioned, was it, you know, things that your parents taught you or things that you lived out? I, I think I was given a tremendous advantage in gaining perspective uh, because of the environments that I got to, to be in, you know, and, um, and when folks have these preconceived notions because they've never been, I think a lot of people that look like me have never been in those environments. So they go by whatever, you know, they conjure up in their mind or see on TV or social media or hear from their parents or their friends, and they don't explore it for themselves and sometimes out of fear. And one more point I'll make about that uh, is, you know, another thing my dad used to say a lot is fear is the unknown. Mm -hmm. um, that a lot of folks just don't know. Uh, and, you know, to follow that up, um, when people say, well, what can we do? And I've given a lot of thought to this because sometimes it's hard to suggest what you should do. I think in retrospect, the best thing you could do is, is uh, put yourself in environments with uh, people that don't look like you. You know, oftentimes folks say, well, I have a lot of friends who are black, right? I have a lot of friends who look like that. Yeah, but they're always on your turf. They're always in your bubble, in your circle. Mm -hmm. um, go to a black church, go to a black barbershop, go to a central high school football game, mm -hmm. go to a 4th of July uh, cookout in a black neighborhood, um, and just put yourself in those environments and your eyes will be open. <laughs> I had so much fun. I always felt respected. I always felt treated with dignity in all of the neighborhoods and, and teams and communities. All these environments that I was in were, you know, I looked around and not a lot of folks looked like me. I, I never felt any different. I was never treated any different. Uh, and so I think that has really shaped my perspective here, um, you know, uh, as, I, as I got older, looking back and reflecting on all that. Hmm. So I, I grew up in a town, New Berlin, uh, right outside Milwaukee. It's about 20 minutes outside of Milwaukee. Um, I didn't understand this growing up, but Milwaukee is actually one of the most racially segregated cities in the country. And um, being a northern state, um, it was something that I just good, bad, or otherwise just didn't, didn't know. And until I, um, really started paying attention, but, um, so I, I preface that in the fact that, um, New Berlin was extremely, extremely white. Um, I mean, I'm talking that there was a, a boy in my class uh, who Aaron Tripps who when the Tripps family moved in the Milwaukee uh, Journal Sentinel actually did an article on them because they were the very first white or black family to move into uh, New Berlin and um, to me it just um, how long ago uh, was that? gosh that was probably I don't know exactly what year they moved in but it was probably mid nineties. Wow. Um, 
I just remember growing up, um, you know, it wasn't something that was really recent in a, in diversity wasn't talked about a lot growing up. Um, however, my parents, you know, I was born in Virginia and moved to Georgia and Illinois. And so experienced my parents, not from a diversity, racial diversity perspective, but from a cultural perspective, my parents were really supportive of that. And, um, where, you know, my mom's from Germany and, and our whole family, but our, and my dad were kind of, as he says, grew up in New York city. And, and then, uh, he moved around a lot as, as a child as well. And so we were not stuck in that, that bubble. And, and so growing up, we, and still to today, travel is a passion and, and getting out in cultures and, and all extremely fortunate growing up that I had actually seen more countries than I had States before I started at, at the job down here in Louisville. And so I think through that experience um, and, and through having the cultural experience, it, it taught us that, you know, cultures and obviously the, the black and the white culture are, are it's different. And, um, and there's things that, you know, you embrace, but to me, that's a huge part of diversity and, and not just the color of the skin, but it's the cultures and, you know, the celebrations and whether that, you know, we might celebrate the same holidays, but we do it in different ways and different foods. And so that through, through that, my parents really embraced that as well as they always took us to, to different, um, you know, growing up doing going downtown. My dad worked downtown. We'd, we'd be there all the time and um, going to sporting events or were different cultural restaurants and foods. And so through that, I don't know that it was intentional. I think the cultural basis was intentional. Um, you know, my dad, his history is, is in, he's a master's degree in social work, but works in affordable housing. And, um, you know, he's put 30 years of that. And I mean, everything from having to to work with his clientele of, of folks that are from extreme poverty all the way up to your, you know, your, your tax credit housing. And, and so being able to, to volunteer was something and, and through that cultural experience, the volunteering and serving other communities that aren't like you was, was definitely installed through my parents. Mm -hmm. um, um, but as far as being intentional about, you know, racial, cultural, um, diversity, you know, something that it, it probably came up in little comments and, and or, you know, uh, conversations, but, um, I know that it was through their actions more than anything that, you know, whether people are poor or rich or, you know, culturally different, embrace it and try to learn from it. And it's, so, um, not to cut you off, yeah. dude, but it's interesting because Kisei, we've talked about on this show before, like being intentional about speaking words to your children and teaching about um, <clears throat> things of race, just teaching those things to our kids. And so it's interesting to me that we have three white families represented here. This is never spoken in my house, not for bad reasons, just because it was never spoken of. Right. And I think you're saying it was never spoken of. And Lance, I don't know if in your family it was an intentional conversation. No. I don't think it was, no. Yeah. It's just interesting that we're from a generation where 
it never was really talked about among white families. Right. Now we're growing, we're in the position that we are parenting children. And if we had white children, we have black children, but if we had white children, I hope we would learn Mm. from the social conversation going on. Hey, we need to speak about these things. So Renee and I couldn't be more thankful that both Lance and Andy grew up appreciating cultural and racial diversity. Our marriages and our families have been blessed by their experiences. And I will say that, um, you know, probably my biggest influence into, you know, black culture and and just that what would be, we call their affectionately mama trips, right? And Aaron and uh, his younger brother was in in my brother's class. And, you know, she, a lot of it was revolved around football, but she just, I mean, even till today, she has a soft spot in my heart because when she would cook for the guys, it was good southern soul black food (laughs) she wasn't even though they were at that time i mean it's much more diverse now but she was not afraid to to bring that out and and with her that that was kind of my you know opening of the door of that Mm -hmm. and um appreciating what what she in that little influence yeah i know (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Made, an, made an impression on you. Yeah. Did. You're so, a good guy. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Oh. <laughs> I think I think that's the big part is I never I think everybody needs to get out of their little bubble and has to get out of their small little town. And yeah. you know, obviously we all live in a small little farm town, right? And um ish. 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 <laughs> ish. Yeah. And so, um, gosh, you got to get out, go to, even if it's just to a, fe- obviously these days we can't, but go, just to a festival, go check out, you know, a couple hours, go to, you know, the, the Jamaican fests or go to, you know, whatever it is, Don, it, just to be exposed to that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we talk about that in, in our uh, Diverse Friendships episode too, mm-hmm. different ways that you can be intentional about. <clears throat> about uh, embracing another culture. So, plug. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of every episode of Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed, we tell a two-minute story about a hero of civil rights. Claudette Colvin is an unsung civil rights pioneer that was born September 5, 1939, and still living today. In March of 1955, she was arrested at the age of 15 in Montgomery, Alabama, for refusing to give up her seat to a white woman on a crowded, segregated bus. This happened nine months before Rosa Parks did the very same thing. Many people know about Rosa Parks in the Montgomery, Alabama bus boycott that began in 1955. But very few know that there were a number of women who refused to give up their seats on the same bus system. The majority of these women were quietly fined, and no one heard much more about them. Claudette Colvin was the first to really challenge the law. When Claudette's high school in Montgomery, Alabama observed Negro History Week in 1955, she had no way of knowing how the stories of Black freedom fighters would soon impact her life. She was later quoted in USA Today as saying, I knew I had to do something. I just didn't know where or when. 
Colvin soon got her chance when she boarded a bus in downtown Montgomery on March 2, 1955. She and three other black students were told to give up their seats for a white woman, but Claudette, feeling emboldened by her history lessons, refused. She said in an interview with NPR, My head was just too full of black history. It felt like Sojourner Truth was on one side pushing me down, and Harriet Tubman was on the other side of me pushing me down. I couldn't get up. Claudette Colvin was one of five plaintiffs in the first federal court case filed by civil rights attorney Fred Gray on February 1st, 1956. The case, Browder versus Gale, challenged bus segregation in the city. In the United States District Court, Colvin testified before a three-judge panel that heard the case. Four months later, on June 13, 1956, the judges determined that the state and local laws requiring bus segregation in Alabama were unconstitutional. The case went to the United States Supreme Court on appeal by the state, and it upheld the district court's ruling on November 13, 1956. One month later, the Supreme Court affirmed the order to Montgomery and the state of Alabama to end bus segregation. The Montgomery bus boycott was then called off. For many years, the Black leaders in Montgomery did not publicize Colvin's pioneering effort. She was an unmarried teenager at the time and was reportedly impregnated by a married man. It was widely accepted that Colvin was not accredited by the civil rights campaigners at the time due to her pregnancy shortly after the incident. Rosa Parks was quoted as saying, If the white press got a hold of that information, they would have a field day. They call her a bad girl and her case wouldn't have a chance. Though Colvin's courageous act occurred nine months before Rosa Parks' similar protest, the NAACP chose to use the 42-year-old civil rights activist and secretary of the local chapter of the NAACP as the public face of the Montgomery bus boycott. When asked why she is little known and why everyone thinks only of Rosa Parks, Colvin says the NAACP and all of the other Black organizations felt Parks would be a good icon because she was an adult. They didn't think teenagers would be reliable. She also says Parks had the right hair and the right look. Colvin rarely talked about her heroic actions until the 1990s. When asked why, she said, I'd like my grandchildren to be able to see that their grandmother stood up for something a long time ago. You can learn more about Claudette Colvin in the book written on her story called Twice Toward Justice by Phil Hoos. It was such a blast talking with Andy and Lance that we had to break this episode into two parts. Listen to part two of Family Ties now on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed. Remember, be humble, be kind, be a good listener and be courageous. Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed is written and produced by Kisa Holke and myself. Music is licensed through musicbed.com. Learn more about us, hear more episodes, and send us your questions and comments at twomamasandamustardseed.com.